we are studying a book that is 2,600 years old, written by a Jewish guy named Daniel, who at the time he started it, or at the time he lived it, he started out as a teenager living in a pagan culture, a pagan nation, dragged away from his home, taken a thousand miles away, kidnapped, as it were. And he's the one that's writing this, understanding what it looks like and how it feels to lose your independence. Israel had been a once great nation under King David. You know, Israel never became an empire because it was never God's plan for them to take over the earth. Not at that time. God will do that later on. But they were going to live for God. They were going to be a light to all the surrounding land. Here's your land. And they were just supposed to inhabit that and live for God and be a light to the rest of the world. But after David comes Solomon, then from Solomon on, things just deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate as God's people turn their backs on him. And it's because of that that now this teenager, because of years of idolatrous leadership, years of leadership that was turning away from God, that Daniel now finds himself in captivity, has lost his independence. So we've lived under the banner for the last four years, the banner of make America great again. And I'm trying to listen better and ask more questions. So when I hear anything like that, any mantra or any tagline, I say, so what does it mean for a nation to be great? When you say make America great again, what does it mean for a nation to be great? What do we mean? Was Babylon a great empire? I mean, in one sense, they were. Depends on perspective, doesn't it? So when we say make America great So who's going to do it? And how are you going to do it? How are we going to make America great again? Or how do people do it? Or how do leaders do it? I'm just asking the questions. When George Washington, our first president, was resigning as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, he wrote a letter. He got distributed, and it was about what he felt had made America great. He listed a number of the attributes. The formation of America was so unique and still is in world history. And he wrote some of the things in this letter that he felt had made America such a unique experience. And the last thing he wrote says, and above all, the pure and benign light of revelation, and as he wrote, it's a capital R, the pure and benign light of revelation have had a meliorating influence on mankind and increased the blessings of society. So you go, well, that sounds great, Pastor, but I have no idea what you just said. All I want you to know is that when he referred to the light of revelation, And this is from the Mount Vernon website. It's not a Christian website, it's just the Mount Vernon website. He meant, by light of revelation, he meant the Bible as the most important factor contributing to the remarkable confluence, how things came together to produce the American nation. The importance of the Bible, the truths of God, and how that helped be formative to such a great nation. And then one of the other significant events that connects to our study in Daniel, how many of you have heard of a guy, obscure guy named Benjamin Franklin? Ever heard of him? Oh, yeah, we know who Benjamin Franklin is. Benjamin Franklin was part of, a, I think, a five-member team that actually wrote the Constitution. They drafted the Constitution, and then there was the convention of leaders that got together to ratify that. And Franklin was 81 years old when he was part of this convention in Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. And they kind of hammered this out. And they were having tremendous difficulty. They had struggles dealing with slavery. They had struggles dealing with division. How are we going to keep the states united? They had all these problems. And Ben Franklin makes a speech that's become very well known during that convention. And in that speech, which I'm not going to read to you, and I'm not going to even tell you where the reference is, 
Ben Franklin refers to the book of Daniel in his speech, and it changes the course of their meeting, what he suggests. And it comes right from the book of Daniel. And I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'll tell you it's in two chapters, but I won't tell you where it is. He quotes from Daniel 4. And so I'm excited to be able to share this with you guys. And the things, the truths that we learn in Daniel, if you want to stay sane in your life, then you've got to understand what Daniel understood. So in Daniel 2, we're only going to do verses 1 through 30. There's a crisis in the Babylonian Empire, really a crisis in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king, the mightiest king reigning over the mightiest empire at that time in history, 600 years before Christ. And there's this crisis that he goes through that we'll read about today, what led to that crisis. And what we're going to do is we're going to contrast through this first section two people, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And we're going to look at how they deal with their lives, how they handle situations, how they handle themselves, how they handle God, how they handle other people. We'll just make some comparisons because Nebuchadnezzar sort of represents the kingdom of godlessness, man-centered, man-empowered. All that's behind it is humanity versus Daniel, who represents a different kingdom altogether. His kingdom is not of this world. Just like Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. So we'll see how their worldview, so to speak, affects their lives through this shared crisis that they have. And I think at the end, what I'm hoping is that as we go through, as I make these comparisons and contrasts, at the end, you'll be able to feel like you connect more with one or the other. Either I'm more like Nebuchadnezzar or I'm more like Daniel. If you find yourself saying I'm more like Daniel, then you're probably living in real time for a kingdom that's not of this world. But if you find yourself more like Nebuchadnezzar, it may be that even if you're a Christian, you're still living for the kingdom of this world because they both produce very predictable things. One more question before we get into it. You've got these two people. Daniel is a teenage kidnap victim taken against his will, carted away from his family, now plopped down in a different culture, given a different identity, being reprogrammed by the Babylonian empire of godlessness. Or you have Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom at his time. Who should be happier? What if it was your child taken away? I mean, if you were able to rescue your child back from being kidnapped, what if terrorists came and they kidnapped your son at age 17, carried him off to Afghanistan, began to reprogram them to be terrorists and give him a new language, new name and all that stuff? Would that be pretty traumatizing, I would think? So who should be happier, Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel? You would think by our judgment, that would be the normal answer. But I think what you'll find is the opposite is true. Somehow Daniel, this is what intrigues me about Daniel. His circumstances don't define his life. His convictions do. So let's get into chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, 605 is when he starts, just a new emperor at that time. In the second year of his reign, he had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. The first thing we notice about Nebuchadnezzar is that his nights had become filled with anxiety. Now, I don't know if that speaks to anybody else, maybe not in this room, but I'll tell you what, I think there's a lot of people whose nights are now filled with anxiety, especially if you go to bed watching the news. Your nights are filled with anxiety. He's so troubled because he has these dreams. Notice it's plural. 
I'm going to make a note about that in a minute. He reigns about 40 years. His reign ends in 562 BC. So it's about a 40-year reign. And he goes to bed two years in worrying, worrying about his future, worrying about his kingdom. You know, there's an old saying, which you strive to obtain, you have to strive to maintain. The harder you had to work to get it, the harder you have to work to keep it and protect it and keep other people from stealing it. I mean, if you were an emperor in those days, you didn't know, are your servants going to stab you in the back? Is someone going to assassinate you? It was a stressful thing to be. So he goes to bed worrying and he begins to dream as his head hits the pillow, and he has multiple dreams. And it's so bad that he got insomnia. He could not sleep. That's what it says there. He's so troubled. He was so anxious. I know a lot of people that are so anxious at night, they can't even think about sleep unless they have their glass of wine. Or they have to have something to help because they're so filled with anxiety. I think the answer is figure out your anxiety. What's making you so anxious that you need that? Not that just you want it or you enjoy it or it's comforting. It's beyond that. It's not that you need that. So that's where Nebuchadnezzar is. So again, his nights were filled with anxiety. Look at number two, verse two. Then the king gave a command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. That's what Daniel's being trained as, this special elite group of scientific astrologers, so to speak. The Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream. Now it's singular, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. The second thing I notice about Nebuchadnezzar is he is absolutely desperate for understanding. I think, if I look at the language right here, I think what Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing is what we would call a recurring dream. It's one dream, but he's having it over and over again. It won't leave him. It's nagging him. It won't let him alone, and he can't shake it. And it's that kind of dream, you know, where you have a dream and sometimes you know it's because you had frozen pizza last night or it's something you ate before you went to bed, just unsettled. But sometimes you have a dream and it wakes you up and you're shaken by it. It's a little bit disturbing to you and you know like, whoa, what was that about? And that's how Nebuchadnezzar is feeling. Now, he's desperate for understanding. So the question is, where do you go when you're desperate for understanding? Something's going on in your life and you want to understand what's happening. Well, all wise, learned people pretty much do the same thing when they're desperate for understanding. If you're really educated, if you're really intelligent, you do what other educated, intelligent people do when they want understanding. You Google it. You Google it. That's what I did. I Googled dream interpretation. Do dreams have deeper meaning? Interestingly, 43%, according to a poll by Newsweek, 43% of people believe that dreams reveal unconscious desires and wishes. Dreams are a way God communicates with people. The book of Acts tells us that. Old men have visions, young men dream dreams. Jacob had his dream of the latter. There's 21 significant dreams in the Bible. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, has four of them that God uses to actually protect Jesus, to move Joseph from here there. God spoke to Joseph that way. So God, the living God, the true God, they had plenty of gods in Babylon. None of them were real. They were all demonic. They led people to do things like child sacrifice and those sorts of things. But there's the living God, and the living God is trying to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, how do you reach a pagan emperor if you're God? He's going to use dreams, and he's going to use Daniel. Daniel's not in Babylon by chance. Daniel is there by God's design, and he is there for a specific purpose. But do you think God only communicates to people that follow him? 
You think God is only communicating to people that are his children or believers in him? God is communicating to a pagan emperor in this passage. Look at verse 4. So the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. I'm sure that this is not the first time he's had a dream. I mean, dream interpretation is a popular thing. Even in the world today, there's ways people interpret what that dream meant. You read the tea leaves, you got the tarot cards, or you got some other way of discerning, getting understanding. The world has its ways of getting understanding. So I'm sure this is not the first time he's come with a dream to his Chaldeans. And it's like business as usual. Oh, king, live forever. Uh, You're awesome. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Now, two things to notice here. Number one, you will never know this unless I tell you, you know that the Bible was not written originally in English. Yes? You know that. New Testament written in what language primarily? Greek. Right. Well, you guys are good students. Old Testament written in what language primarily? Hebrew. Excellent. Except for this section and a couple other small places. From verse 4, from Daniel 2, 4, starting with O King, all the way to the end of chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic originally which was the language of the world at that time. It was the English of the day. It was the language most widely spoken, Aramaic. So you can debate why was this section written in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. We don't know for sure, but one good guess is that it would reach a wider audience, that there would be a section of the Bible that could be read by most people in the language that they spoke that would talk about the true and living God's involvement in the affairs of mankind. So you can play with that just so that you know that's there. The second thing is dream interpretation. Tell us the dream, king, and we'll tell you what it means. Well, how do you validate that? Have you ever had a dream and someone tried to tell you what it meant? Or you try to figure out what it meant? Well, how do you know if you're right? There turns out there's a certain number of dreams that are recurring that people experience. Anybody ever had a dream that they were falling? Yeah, okay. So Russell Grant, the author of the Illustrated Dream Dictionary, said, falling often expresses a need to let yourself go more and enjoy life more. Okay, sounds good. How do you know? How do you know if he's right? How about being chased? Anybody have a recurring dream of being chased? That was mine. I was growing up, I had a recurring dream of being chased around these trees. Still remember it. It was very troubling when I had it. Well, Tony Crisp, author of Dream Dictionary, suggests that being chased in a dream might indicate a desire to escape from your own fears or desires. Okay, maybe. How do you know? I don't bring these things up because I believe that these are valid interpretations of these dreams. I bring this up to say, how do you know? How do you validate? They say, oh, king, just give your servants the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar says, this is way too important. Like, I need to know that I know that I know that it's not just that you guys aren't charlatans, you're just making some stuff up to appease me. One more thing before we go on. Notice this, who are the people in his life, Nebuchadnezzar's life? Who are the people that he turns to? What do they call themselves? Your servants. Notice this, because it's going to be important when we look further in Daniel's life. Nebuchadnezzar's life is surrounded by servants. People that are close to him are the people that serve him. He's their master, There is servants, and that's going to matter. How you see people and how you treat people really matters in your life. And if you see people as servants, and many people do, people exist just to meet my needs. My spouse just exists to meet my needs. My kids just exist to meet my needs. You don't really recognize it, but that's how you see people as they're there to serve 
you. Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar. He has people in his life, but he sees them as servants. Okay, look at verse five. So the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces. How many of you think that's a bad thing? That's probably a bad thing. You should be cut in pieces and your house shall be made an ash heap or a dunghill and burn your house down and cut you in pieces. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I want you to tell me not just the interpretation, but I want you to tell me what I dreamed, what I dreamt. What was my dream? Because if you can tell me that, then I can trust that your interpretation is right. You know, he argues from the greater to the lesser. It's like when Jesus heals the paralytic that was lowered down. Remember the guy, four guys bring their friend who's paralyzed and they lower him down. They dig through the roof, lower him down. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, hey, how can he say that? Only God can say that. And he says, which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, if Jesus says rise and walk, there's gonna be proof. So if he says it and the guy rises and walks, it shows that he's got power and therefore you can trust when he says your sins are forgiven. Similar kind of idea here. If they can give the dream, then he can trust the interpretation. Here's what I want you to notice about Nebuchadnezzar. Notice his communication. Notice Nebuchadnezzar communicates with demands. He's demanding. Agreed? If you don't do what I want, I'm going to tear you up. And if you do do what I want, then I'll give you a reward. He uses incentive. I'm going to give you a reward punishment kind of thing because I really want to get what I want. So I'm going to communicate that to you in a very demanding way. And since people are just servants, they are disposable. I'll give you incentives. I want you to accomplish this. But if you can't, if you don't do what I want or you're not able to, then I'm done with you. You're disposable. When you see people as just servants, if they stop meeting your needs, you just discard them. Can you imagine the anxiety of working for Nebuchadnezzar? Anybody had a boss like that? Full of incentives and threats? It'd be a terrible place to work. So they answered again and said, verse seven, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Come on, Nebi, give us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. We've been here before. And the king said, I know for certain that you would gain time. You guys are stalling because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. But what's going on here? See, Nebuchadnezzar says, look, you guys are just stalling. You're patronizing me. Knock it off. Quit stalling. Give me the dream and the interpretation and we can get on with this. And then notice, look at verse nine. He says, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. What he's saying is, you guys, you've compacted together to stall me until I forget about my dream and things change. Life goes on until I get past this. You're just gonna lie to me and you're just gonna try to speak corrupt words before me until I get over it. So Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of guy that just thinks the worst. Anybody else like that? He's just convinced. It's almost like he's paranoid. He's just convinced that they're out to get him and they're just gonna lie to him to stall. And I know people that are like that. 
always thinking the worst. The reality is they just can't do it. That's the problem. Not that they want to lie to him. They just can't do it. Verse 10, then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Is he right on that? Yes and no. In a sense, yes. In a sense, no. Daniel's going to do it, but he's not going to do it by himself. They say that is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. I mean, king, you are asking too much. You're too demanding. Have you found the world to be overly demanding? Do people ask things of you that you just can't give? I feel that way sometimes. People are hard to please. Am I alone in that? All kinds of expectations. And the minute you please one, you make a thousand others mad. Then we just can't please everybody. It's just impossible. And so they said, look, we can't tell you it's not possible. It's not something that's derived on a human level. And so much of our rhetoric is trying to get people to do for us what only God can do. I'm going to change people. I'm going to demand. I'm going to offer incentives and threats to try to get people to give me what I need. Does that sound familiar? And if you can't do it, I'm done with you. It's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They recognize what you're asking can't be derived on a human level. There are things that just can't be derived on a human level. Verse 12 says, for this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So notice where Nebuchadnezzar is emotionally. He's frustrated. He's furious. He's angry. What do you think's making him angry? What do you think's behind that? He's filled with anxiety. He's desperate for understanding. He looks the servants close to him to provide it for him. They say, we can't do it. And where does he go next? He's frustrated. So he reacts extreme. Would you call his actions extreme? Remember, he could just say, well, you guys are all fired. But this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is a pagan government we're talking about. He's extreme. So it's not just good enough to be fired. I'm going to kill not just the ones who are here. I'm going to kill them all. So he reacts senselessly. And I use that word on purpose. Nebuchadnezzar reacts senselessly. What good is it going to do to destroy all of them? Why does he need to do that? Now, enter Daniel, verse 14, and you'll see why I use that wording. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So they've set the wheels in motion. I mean, there's knocks on doors. Wise men are being dragged out, being killed. They're starting the process. And Daniel approaches the head henchman, the head executioner. And he answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel wasn't even there. But yet he's going to lose his head in the matter too. See how extreme Nebuchadnezzar is being? Just kill everybody. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Nebuchadnezzar reacts senselessly. He's like a bull in a china shop. No filter, no discernment. But Daniel acts tastefully or sensibly. I use that word sense 
or taste. It literally means taste, not like the faculty of tasting something, but have you ever met someone that has bad taste or good taste? Maybe in clothes, maybe fashion sense. What would you say is the difference between someone who has good taste and bad taste in clothes or books or movies? Maybe someone who has good taste in clothing has a little more in touch with fashion, the nuances of fashion. Someone that has bad taste just seems to be somewhat clueless. Can we agree with that? Does that sound close enough? I'm one, like when it comes to food, there's some people that have discerning taste buds. They can taste the subtle differences. They're sensitive to the spices. Me, just send me to the buffet. It doesn't have to taste good. There just has to be a lot of it. Especially back in the day when I was a competitive athlete, man, I just was trying to gain weight. I would eat anything. I just want more of it. And then you take me to some gourmet restaurant and they put out a plate and there's like a little tiny piece of salmon or something. It's like a little square. It's like an inch square. And it's got little green things on it and some sauce drizzled on there. And it's 200 bucks. And I'm like, that's it? One forkful and don't you sense the flavor? No, I don't actually. Where's the rest? So when it comes to that, I'm not very tasteful in a sense. But then how do we apply that to relationships? How do we apply that to the situation? Daniel goes with counsel and with taste or with feeling. That's what the word sense means to feel. He was sensitive to the situation. And I think that's one of those signs of godliness. Godly people don't just react senselessly. They act sensibly. They have their wits about them. They confront the situation. They ask questions sensitive to the situation going on. So that's what verse 14 tells us about Daniel and what a contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. This is a gutsy move by Daniel. Remember, he goes in and says to the king, first of all, he's going to the king of Babylon. So he must have had a little bit of relationship there with the king that he could do that. He's talked to Arioch. He asks him, what's the problem? Arioch explains to him. So he goes right to the source, goes right to the king himself. And what's he asked for? Say it. Time. What was the king so mad about? Time. Quit stalling. I'll take your heads off. Tell me the dream. So now Daniel goes in. Daniel must not have told anybody because if I was Daniel's friend, I'd have been like, dude, that's crazy. He's going to kill you right there. Don't do that. But he goes in and notice, verse 16, Daniel went in and asked, he asked the king to give him time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Notice the difference. Nebuchadnezzar, the world's way is to communicate with demands. God's way is to make requests. Daniel simply makes a request. Who are you more like, Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel? Are you one that communicates with demands, always demanding of people and then threatening them? Or can you just simply let your need be known? Isn't that what Philippians 4 tells us? All right, look at verse 17. Daniel went to his house and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Daniel uses their Hebrew names. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, the dream so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
So notice another thing. Where does Nebuchadnezzar go when he's seeking understanding? He's got servants, people that exist just to meet his needs, just to serve him. What does Daniel have? Yes, he's got God. That's true. And we'll get there. But what else does he have? He's got friends. Way before there was a coronavirus pandemic, there was a loneliness pandemic. And it's alarming how many people I meet that do not have friends. People have acquaintances, but when it comes time to a crisis in your life, this is a life or death situation. I mean, if they don't get this, Daniel's put himself in the line. He said, King, give me some time. I'll bring you the interpretation. And he goes, Oh, God. <laughs> but he's not going to pray alone. He's got friends that can pray with him. People in the world have acquaintances, but are mostly very lonely. God's people have true friends that they can pray with, that they know on a more intimate level. Praying is an intimate thing, isn't it? Praying is a very intimate thing where you share your heart. So they're going to seek the mercies from God. Nebuchadnezzar's desperate for understanding and Daniel is desperate for understanding. Nebuchadnezzar looks out to people, human beings, to try to give him understanding of spiritual things. How many of you know that human beings can't give you understanding of spiritual things? They can guide you to God and his word. But Paul said in Corinthians, what man knows the things of the man except the spirit of the man that's in him? In other words, I can't know what you're thinking. Only you know what you're thinking. You ever looked at your kids and say, what were you thinking? And you have to ask because you go, I don't know what you were thinking. But deep inside, a person can tell you what they're thinking. And if that's true of a human being, then what man can know the things of God except the Spirit of God? So if a person wants to know what God is thinking, he has to have the Spirit of God. So where do you go when you want to understand spiritual things? You can't turn to religion. You can't turn to tradition. You've got to turn to God. And Daniel has an already existing relationship with God. Remember, chapter one, Daniel lived by his convictions. He was convicted about his purity, about not defiling himself. He wanted to honor God with his life. And it's that Daniel that now comes to prayer. A lot of people pray. Praying is just something I do. I just kind of talk to nobody. I talk into the air. I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know the character or nature or anything about the sense that I'm talking to a living being. I'm just kind of throwing up some thoughts. You know anybody that prays like that? Well, they say, oh, well, pastor, I pray. I've met all kinds of people who say, oh, pastor, I pray. To who? Well, I don't know. I just pray. I just, I just pray. I pray. I pray, pastor. I pray. When I'm scared, I talk to nobody. Daniel knew exactly who he was talking to, and he knew the character, and he said that we might seek the mercies. There's no demands of God He's seeking God's mercy. When we come to prayer, say, God, be merciful. I think that prayer, I think God loves that prayer. When you just say, God, Abba, Father, I just need mercy. I need help. Philippians 4, 7, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication, let your needs be known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So verse 19, they have a prayer meeting. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Not a dream. Night vision. What's the difference, pastor? I think the difference is between being awake and being asleep. I don't know. 
So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Maybe Daniel had night vision goggles. I don't know. So Nebuchadnezzar experiences frustration, but Daniel experiences revelation. As they're laying in bed, they're praying, and he just goes, I think I got it. I think I know. God just gave me this vision. Like I saw it all in an instant in my mind. I know the dream. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, come on, Dan, are you sure? I mean, do you really know? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. How do you know? Well, I just know that I know. You haven't asked Nebuchadnezzar? No, I haven't. Well, then how can you know? Because I know. And that boggles the mind of people that don't know God. Because you actually talk to God, and God actually talks back, and he reveals things to you. Like God reveals things to people. Especially when you go to bed praying instead of going to bed worrying. So he reveals to Daniel the dream. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and seasons, and he removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Notice as we start to read this, does it look different in your Bible? It's not paragraph form, it's stanza form. It's written, when you see that in your Bible, it means it's a poem or a song. So Daniel's, in response to God's mercy, writes a song or a poem. And it begins with this blessing God. And then look, he says, wisdom and might are his. He changes times and seasons. I mean, you want change? You pray. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. If there's anybody who has true wisdom, it's from God. If there's anybody who has true knowledge and true understanding, there's a lot of people who claim to be wise or claim to have understanding. If it's true, it's from God. But Daniel is now overwhelmed by a sense of the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. He alone rules. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not anybody. God alone rules. God raised up Pharaoh, Exodus 9.16. I've raised you up, God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Who raised up Pharaoh? God did. You can even read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel. Who raised up Nebuchadnezzar? God did. Who's allowing him to overtake Jerusalem? God is. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, we roll the dice and say, okay, it's going to be chance. We know when you roll dice, you don't know what it's going to be. You just go, we'll see. But God makes it land on the numbers. In other words, we cast lots, we roll the dice, but God decides where those dice land. Some of us have this idea that we're actually going to elect the president. We're going to vote, but God is going to elect the president, just like he has every other world leader all through time and all through history, because God and God alone is sovereign. Now, Daniel is calm because he knows the sovereignty of God. But we live like God is somehow out of control. Like in a pandemic, God is in control. It's the sovereignty of God. We do the right things. We act wisely. We act sensibly. And we trust that God is in control. So James Garfield, 1881. Some of our presidents have been sworn in on a Bible closed. Others have been sworn in on a Bible opened randomly to a page. Some presidents have chosen the verses that they would be sworn in on. And one of those is James Garfield, who chose Proverbs 21, 1, that said, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, 
he turneth it wheresoever he will. God is in charge of raising up one, putting down another. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's deciding to go attack Jerusalem. That's his wisdom and his might. And God's going, "Eh, okay, you can think that if you want. Look at verse 22. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. You want truth? You want to know secrets, mysteries, dark things, things that people are confused about? You go to God. There's some things in my life that were so deep. But when I read the Bible, God began to reveal things to me about myself. It's all in his word. It's all right there. So Daniel says, verse 23, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. Remember, God had it. Can't give what you don't have. God gave Daniel wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Nebuchadnezzar experienced anger. His emotion was anger. What's Daniel's? Gratitude. Big difference, isn't there? Big difference in the way you live. Big difference in your worldview. Big difference in how you approach problems. Now, Daniel approaches his problems with confidence in prayer, looking for mercy. Nebuchadnezzar approached his problems looking out instead of up with demands and incentives and threats and frustration because no one could do it. Huge difference. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Excuse me? Daniel says, a courageous Daniel says to the executioner, look, a lot happens in his life before he ever hits the floor of the lion's den. He went and said, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Well, who is ordering who around now? All of a sudden, it seems like Daniel's in charge. Don't do it. Don't destroy it. I'm going to tell the king the interpretation. Well, this is great. Verse 25 is so classic. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, to the king, I have found a man. <laughs> who are you kidding? I have found a man of the Catholics of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. You see, when all you have to offer is threats and incentives, sometimes the incentive is for people to lie to get the reward. So Arioch, he says, okay, Daniel knows the dream, knows the interpretation, but he takes credit for it. Oh, I, I found king. I found this guy, Daniel, and he can tell you, the, I, 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 I found. Look what I did. I found. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Remember that reward you talked about? I found him. You loser. You did not find Daniel found you. All right, moving on. Verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, Arioch becomes invisible now, (laughs) didn't care about him, whose name was Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Oh, I wish I could have heard it, like what the intonation was. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret of the mystery which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. King, you have made a demand that is unobtainable. You have asked more than they could give because they're human and they can't give it to you. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, or he will, what will be in the latter days or the end of the age. Nebuchadnezzar looked outward for answers. Daniel looked up for answers. 
and he got them. So many people looking out human level for answers. There are big questions, aren't there? Big questions about why are we here? What happens when we die? All these big questions. What's my purpose? What's life worth living for? We're seeing suicide rates increase. Who knows the psychosocial effects of quarantine and isolation that are going to have on on kids and families. I mean, who knows what's yet to come in terms of a, a social science aspect. But when you look out for answers, Daniel looked up for answers. And therefore, look at the confidence that he had. He doesn't say, King, I think I know. It might be the right one. I'm not sure. Could be. I don't know. We'll find out. He knows that he knows. How do you know when you've actually heard from God? Like you try to explain that to someone who doesn't know God, you say, you know what? I really feel like God spoke to me. And they go, well, how do you know? I just know. Because the spirit in me just affirms that it connects in heart and mind to God. I just know that was God. Anybody have that experience? You try to explain that to somebody else, they don't get it. But I can tell you that there are times in my life where I know that I know that I know that God opened my eyes. And Daniel's having one of those moments. He just knows. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind. He's a mind reader now. Thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. God was talking to Nebuchadnezzar about the future, about his future about the end of the age. And that's when we're going to get into the dream itself. That's for next week. Nebuchadnezzar is worried about his future. A lot of people are worried about their future. But Daniel knows the God who knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning and can be honest about it. One more quick point here. I appreciate when people are honest with me, don't you? Even if it's a hard truth, I appreciate when people are honest. And God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a perspective on himself and on time and on world kingdoms. Look, ultimately the dream is going to be Nebuchadnezzar, you got a kingdom, it's not going to last. Someone's going to conquer you and someone's going to conquer them and someone's going to conquer them and someone's going to conquer them until God himself sets up his kingdom that's everlasting at the end of the age. Human kingdoms will come to an end, including yours, including ours. And now to me, I'm like, That's perspective building because God tells me my life is a vapor. We spend so much time trying to avoid or run from the realities of our life. Life and death are part of our experience. But we want to avoid that. We don't want to talk about it. We want to pretend that somehow we're all going to live to be 600 years old as long as we have blueberries in our smoothies and eat wheatgrass or whatever else. It's just a matter of how healthy you are when you die. That's all. Someone's going to conquer you. You're going to build a castle and someone else is going to tear it down. You're going to build a house and build a kingdom, your own little kingdom, because you're the own little king in your kingdom. And then someone else is going to remodel it because they're going to hate what you did. They're going to move in. They're going to remodel it. But the Bible tells me that I have an inheritance that's secure in heaven. And I'm going to have a resurrected body. I'm going to live eternity with the living God. And I shouldn't put all my hope and all my worry about the things of this life and this kingdom, and this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my guys would fight. The kingdom we live for, the kingdom Daniel lives for, is not of this world. Nebuchadnezzar's got to learn that lesson. 
Daniel says, but as for me, verse 30, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. Isn't Daniel a humble guy? But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and, so there's two reasons, one, to save their lives, and two, that you may know or understand the thoughts of your heart. So why did we start with Nebuchadnezzar having unsettling dreams that were causing him anxiety that he wanted to understand? Because he didn't understand what his own heart was saying to him. He didn't even understand his own thoughts of his heart, his worries about the future, his worries about his kingdom, his worries about his power. So God is going to give him this dream, has given him the dream. Daniel will give him the understanding so that the emperor of Babylon can know the thoughts of his own heart. He could rule over this huge outward kingdom. But for us, sometimes the hardest kingdom to understand is the one between our shoulders. The difficulty of dealing with what's in our own hearts and our own thoughts. If you can master that, you can master anything. And how do you master that? God has to tell you about yourself. You can't figure yourself out. You go to God, he tells you about yourself. And it's very peaceful after that. Very peaceful. So who do you connect most with? Nebuchadnezzar's behavior, thoughts, attitudes, emotions, actions, or Daniel's? If you say Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't mean you're not saved. Doesn't mean you're not one of God's children. It just may be you're one of God's children living in the wrong kingdom, living for the wrong things, living with the wrong worldview. But if you say Daniel, and that's what you're more connected with Daniel, your life of prayer, friendships that are deeper, the way you communicate, then you're living maybe more for the eternal kingdom and you'll probably experience more peace. Who's happier? Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Your life is filled with gratitude and not frustration, anxiety. That's very predictable. So leave you hanging there. Come next week for the dreams, the interpretation. It's one of the most important prophetic passages in the whole of the Bible.